Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's guest is Dr. Stephen Wolfram, a theoretical physicist, computer scientist, and the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research. In terms of conventional credentials, it's safe to say that Stephen Wolfram's early life was highly unusual. He was admitted to Eton, a prestigious school in England, but left without finishing. Then he got into Oxford, but left without a degree. But then he earned a PhD in physics in only a year, became the youngest recipient in history of the MacArthur Genius Grant, and was awarded one of the most coveted positions in academia at the Institute of Advanced Study in Princeton before founding a now global company and inventing some of the most powerful computer software in history, which, by the way, answers the questions you ask Siri and Alexa. What I most wanted to know about Wolfram was whether the radical independence of his educational trajectory was connected with his astonishing success in science and in business. If so, what advice might he have for others, and for young people especially? Though there is obviously no simple formula to life, I've often observed young people feeling pressured into conformity with unexamined expectations and assumptions about career, education, life in general, as though they're on a treadmill, packing their high school lives with extracurriculars in order to get into college, and then choosing a college and a major, not for education or interest, but merely as a credential, always something in the hope of something else. But does any of this make any sense? When one of the most successful CEOs in the country says he thinks that he is less busy than many high school students, it makes you wonder whether the busyness of young people is really necessary or maybe even harmful. When many of our most prestigious colleges and universities turn out students unable to think for themselves, it makes you wonder whether our system of education has taken a very wrong turn. Wolfram inspires us to step outside these habits and assumptions of the crowd, to think more independently and imaginatively, and he encourages young people especially to approach their lives with freedom and a sense of possibility, their possibility. I know most of us don't have Stephen Wolfram's scientific genius, but any of us can follow his example by casting off ignorant and counterproductive expectations in favor of living larger, fuller, more adventuresome, and more interesting lives. This is an interview with someone who doesn't believe in just checking boxes and who thinks that even the most intractable problems are solvable and that great things are waiting to be done, maybe by you. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. It's a great honor today to have Dr. Stephen Wolfram with me on the Ralston College podcast. Dr. Wolfram is a mathematician, a theoretical physicist, a computer scientist, and among many other things, the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research. Dr. Wolfram, thank you very much for joining me today. Pleased to be here. I would like to start by speaking a little bit about education straight out of the gate. It was over educational topics that we, I think we first connected. You yourself had a very unusual educational trajectory. Though you attended Eton as a boy, uh, for our listeners who don't know, that's a famous boys' school in England. You didn't, as so far as I under understand, actually quite finish high school. You then started at Oxford, but then left after only a year for Caltech, where 
after only another year without either an undergraduate degree or having finished high school, you were awarded a PhD. It's an absolutely amazing uh, educational story. And, and I know, of course, that you have very remarkable talents that in some respects make this not something that would apply you know, widely to just anyone. But at the same time, do you think there is something that others can learn from your peculiar path? Okay, so, so the basic point is, yeah. I got interested in science and particularly in physics when I was probably 10, 11 years old, and I decided I'm just gonna learn about this topic. And you know, at the time, this was long before the web or anything like that. Uh, you know, I discovered this amazing thing, like you could read a book and you could learn about something. And uh, that worked really well. And not only could you like read books and learn about things, but you could, uh, ask questions that people maybe hadn't asked before. And, you know, I wasn't at all into doing the exercises in the books. I never did that actually. Um, but instead I would kind of make up questions that seemed to me interesting to try to answer. And I would try and answer them. And that got me into doing kind of physics research and so on um, at, a, at a pretty young age. I mean, as it turned out, you know, I went to kind of Eton as sort of a, uh, you know, I was a, scholarship kid at, at sort of the fanciest, uh, it was kind of in the, in the fanciest set of the, I didn't realize it at the time, okay, but, but as I realized later, I was sort of in the, the sort of top echelon of sort of, uh, you know, kids who did exams to get into fanciest schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I was there, it was a lot of, you know, learning in Latin and Greek and things like this, and I was like, okay, I can do this, I, you know, I have a good memory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's kind of fun, actually. But it's like, I'm never going to use this stuff ever again in my life. Okay, so now it's sort of ironic that uh, sort of right behind my desk, I have, you know, a Latin dictionary and a Greek dictionary. There. How come? Well, it's because I do things like try and name concepts and products and things like that. And it's pretty routine for me to want to go back to those, you know, Latin Greek roots and so on. But, you know, what I, I, I think... Um, uh, I would have said at the time, oh, nothing I'm learning in school is worth learning. The only things that I'm learning that are worthwhile are things that I'm studying for myself and figuring out about physics and so on. As it turns out, I think a bunch of what I learned about, you know, English writing, about sort of history, about other, those kinds of things. Um, actually, I've used almost all of it. I mean, I think I've I've led a life where I'm trying to deliver, for example, computational knowledge to the world. And so that tends to in, you know, entail kind of um, uh, sort of getting uh, content about um, sort of everything you can imagine. But, but I think for me, the, the most significant thing about my educational trajectory probably was that I realized pretty early that what I was really interested in was doing things that hadn't been done before. And that's what I spent a lot of my time doing. And, you know, that meant, and I, I think I never kind of got the idea that that should be hard, so to speak. And I also somehow, the actual navigation of the educational system wasn't completely trivial because, you know, I was doing things where people say, oh, you shouldn't do that. You know, that's a terrible thing to do, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You'll be all out of place if you're at this institution younger than everybody else who's there, or you'll do this and that and the other. I mean, I, I realized probably that the, the number one failure of my education, perhaps, was, you know, I've spent some part of my life, you know, CEOing companies, organizing things, things like that. But sort of the feedback from my educational process was a lot about, you know, kind of, well, you, you're a, a, you know, a, a science kid, 
and you know sort of the assumption is science kids are all geeks and they can't do things like organize companies and so on and it took me a while to uh, to learn that that wasn't in fact the case in my particular example and that would have been a that would have been a terrific piece of feedback to have got from the from the education process I and mean, I didn't get much feedback about you know sort of the the do research thing because I was mostly just doing that on my own I wasn't doing that as part of sort of the uh, the education process so to speak but I think that the uh, you know it really helped me that I had a topic that I was kind of passionate about learning about and figuring things out about from a pretty young age and um, although as it turned out you know by the time I was like 20 uh, it had been my goal you know be a physicist so by the time I was 20 I was you know by anybody's uh, measure of, of that a professional physicist so to speak and it was kind of good that that happened quickly because then I thought well uh, you know okay so check that off now what else can I do and so got into uh, and got some confidence to to try and do things where uh, that were sort of uh, further out on the curve of, of what people think might be possible and so on. I mean, ironically enough, about 40 years later, I got back into doing physics. And just in the last uh, six, nine months or so, and I made tremendous progress in physics, probably uh, in the end, kind of uh, uh, quite historic progress in physics. And it's sort of interesting to me that the the 40-year gap probably is what made that possible, so to speak. Um, that is, if I had um, just gone straight, you know, I was a physics professor, if I just kept going and been doing physics for the past 40 years, I'm pretty sure that I would not have had a chance to do the things that I've been able to do recently um, uh, in, in sort of rethinking how the foundations of physics might work. You know, the way you've put this is uh, just so interesting to me and very inspiring too, because you've Frame this about a kind of willingness to approach something unconventionally. You know, first of all, you didn't you were able to do things you didn't know that you weren't supposed to be able to do. And this seems to be right at the heart of what a, a great education should foster is precisely that spirit of independence. Do you have any advice to young people about how to direct themselves in terms of their own education, how to become independent-minded, to, to be open to what they might be able to do that they may not even know that they can do? Yeah, I think it's an interesting question. I mean, look, I think my theory is for everybody, there is an interesting niche in the world. There's a, a, a place where their particular skills, talents, interests will be a fit. It's not trivial to find that place. And, you know, it is a matter of luck whether you live at a time in history when the things that are sort of optimized for you are things that uh, the world, uh, you know, has on offer, so to speak. I mean, if the thing that's optimized for you is, you know, go find the source of the Nile or something, well, that's already been done. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a question of, you know, is, is the... Um, and for me, I've been fortunate that, uh, for me, kind of the whole computation paradigm and thinking about formal systems in that kind of way is something that has been tremendously fruitful and tremendously much sort of just emerging in the world uh, during the course of my career, so to speak. Um, so I've been kind of lucky in terms of that timing. You know, I, I wonder to myself, what would I have done 100 years ago? What would I have spent my time doing? I, I think recently I, I, I had concluded that I might be a zoologist, kind of collecting knowledge about um, the creatures of the earth or maybe an encyclopedist or something. Um, but it wouldn't, for me, I don't think it would have been, uh, you know, I, 
I think I've been lucky to have lived at a time in history when the particular things that seem to resonate with the kinds of things that, that I like to do and, and maybe even I'm, I'm somewhat good at doing um, are kind of uh, just emerging. But I think the, you know, the number one thing is what do you really like to do? What are you really interested in? And, and unfortunately, that's not so easy to figure out because the first question is what is there to do? I mean, what people get taught in school is just... Is a, is a fairly narrow story, typically, about what there is in the world, so to speak. I mean, I remember with one of my kids long ago, uh, he was doing homeschooling kinds of things, and it was like, let's just look at the encyclopedia. We look at the whole span of the encyclopedia, and let's pick out random articles and ask, are they part of the standard school curriculum? And the answer is maybe one-third of them are, and the other two-thirds are not, and they're things that are interesting, and they're things which people do and people care about, um, but they just don't happen to be part of the, the packaging of what is provided in the sort of the standard, uh, at least K through 12 education system. So I, I would say that the, the first thing is, what is it that you really find the most interesting? And sometimes you get clues about that because, you know, there are things you study in school that you really like or that you're really good at or whatever else. But often it isn't the direct subject matter that is the thing that is the most significant to you about that thing. Like, you know, kids who are really enthusiastic about math. What about math are they enthusiastic about? It could range from they like winning the math competitions to they like solving the problems to they, they like this kind of aesthetic formalism of mathematics to, uh, to even they like things where it's sort of obscure knowledge that other people don't have. There's a whole whole range of different things. And depending on why it is that you like that, that sort of affects your kind of uh, how to generalize that to think about what kinds of topics or, or whatever else um, you, you might pursue. But, you know, for me, this whole question about sort of figuring things out for oneself and not just assuming that, um, uh, for, for example, one, one of the very basic things is sort of the realization that sort of everything in this world was created as part of our civilization. Somebody invented that thing. And, you know, I get this, I get to see this firsthand in a rather interesting way because we have this website product called Wolfram Alpha, which computational knowledge engine that answers questions for people, students, people who use Siri, people who use Alexa, whatever. These are, um, it's, it's uh, millions of people every day who are asking all kinds of questions about the world and it's trying to compute answers. But um, uh, it's particularly used by, by students and technical subjects and so on they'll use it to study things, do their homework, whatever else. And I quite often give talks to groups of students and so on. And it's kind of an interesting moment when they kind of, they know, oh, they use Wolfram Alpha. They maybe, they use it every day. And then they notice, oh, this guy's name is Stephen Wolfram. How can that be? It's similar to the name of this website I use every day. And there's this moment when they realize, ah, okay, there must be some connection. This website is just a thing out there in the technological world. You know, somebody had to create it. And I think that's a, a realization that not everybody kind of ever has, that all these things that we see sort of as, as pieces of our civilization, they had to be created by somebody, and that somebody in the next generation could be you, so to speak. And uh, I would say that for me, a large part of things I've done, it's like realizing that that might be possible for me, I always just assume it's going to be possible. I mean, people say you've done a lot of projects that involve a high degree of risk. For me internally, they all seem zero risk because I'm, I'm sure they're possible. 
and that's important when you lead teams and things to project this notion of no, it is not impossible is kind of the most important thing in actually making a project happen. And I've been fortunate that no project I've ever tried to do has turned out to be impossible, though sometimes what exactly the project was changed a bit from my original conception to what actually actually came out. But I, I would say that the, um, uh, I mean, you know, having said that, the, you know, for me, the projects I've done have arguably become increasingly more difficult over the years. And, you know, if you start off, uh, you know, if I'd started off when I was first doing physics at age, I don't know, 12, 13, whatever, saying, I'm going to go find the fundamental theory of physics, that would have failed. It wouldn't have been the right, right thing to do. Instead, what I did were much more modest kind of research things that were within reach and I could achieve. And then, I don't know, 45 years later or something, came back and, and tried to actually nail, you know, the big the big thing of, of you know, finding the fundamental theory of physics. But I suppose those are a few, um, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just a tremendous believer in this idea that for everybody there's kind of a, an optimal niche, but it's just a, it's a big complicated puzzle uh, to find that often. And I would say that, that um, uh, in terms of, of education, the um, learning about lots of different things is really useful. Learning facts about lots of different things is really useful in my view. I mean, I'm, reasonably fortunate in that I have a good memory. So once I learn facts, they tend to stick with me for a long time. But for me, you know, as I've tried to do different kinds of things, just knowing a lot about a bunch of different areas is really, really useful. I mean, in terms of how to think about things, for me, you know, I spend, I spend all my time kind of trying to solve problems and trying to think things through. And for me, you know, my particular approach to things tends to be you know, can I understand the foundational questions here? Okay, so I mean, a typical thing for me is given a field, uh, you know, which I get interested in, it's like, my first question is, what is the fundamental problem of this field? And often people will say, oh, the fundamental problem was thought about 100 years ago, 200 years ago. You know, nobody can work on the fundamental problem. It's just too hard. People have been, you know, it's been 100 years. People, people haven't done nothing on it. Well, it turns out, it's often, you know, the, the biggest sort of avoidance of the fundamental problem is, is often the wrong strategy because, you know, there are new methods for, since 100 years ago. And, uh, you know, if you go start looking at the fundamental problem, well, maybe you won't solve the whole thing in the form that it was originally formulated, but maybe you'll be able to make some new progress. If you're working on some tentacle, you know, in some corner somewhere, you pretty much guarantee your progress is limited to sort of, this small domain around the tentacle, so to speak. I mean, okay, i make one more comment about this, which is, you know, people I think sometimes don't recognize that, for example, in, in doing research and a lot of kinds of things, the strategy is often more important than the mechanics, so to speak. In other words, you know, if you're doing research, the question of what are you going to do research about and how are you going to do it is often sort of the key determiner of whether you will be successful, much more so than the mechanics of how you do it. I mean, I've, I've been really struck working on this fundamental physics stuff that I've been doing. I have a great deal more sympathy for things that, uh, that Albert Einstein would say about his work on relativity. He was fond of saying that, you know, people would say, oh, it's such advanced mathematics. And he would say, let me tell you, you know, the mathematics is really difficult for me. And, um, and you know, in other words, uh, and I find, I find the same thing. That is, the things I'm doing in physics require a bunch of mathematical and formal sophistication 
that is, in some cases, beyond what, what our civilization has reached so far. But some of it is kind of at the, at the outer edge of what kind of uh, pure mathematics has provided. But it's a big stretch for me to apply that pure mathematics to the kinds of things I want to do in physics. But the fact is, you know, I'm managing to get it done. And part of the point is, if, if it sort of had been left to the pure mathematicians, so to speak, they're studying very interesting things, but their strategy is quite different. It's not about, you know, I'm going to try and find, you know, pull this whole thread that gets me to the fundamental theory of physics. It's let me study this, you know, this abstract mathematical thing that people have written papers about, that I can write another paper about. So, you know, it's the strategy that kind of pulls the thing through more so than the, than the mechanics, which, you know, okay, I, I'm probably not totally incompetent but, at these things, but it's, it's still, you know, it's a big stretch to reach the sort of levels of, of, let's say, pure mathematical formal sophistication that are needed. So I think that that's a, a thing worth remembering, that, that it's something they don't tend to teach in school, right? They teach how to get stuff done, but not what you should do, so to speak. I mean, they tend to teach, you know, like selecting a problem, I don't know whether there's any place in sort of the standard education process, and maybe this is something you're going to contribute, but, but you know, there's, there isn't a, a place where it's like, okay, so let's talk about, uh, you know, let's, let's get practice in formulating questions as well as, uh, you know, practice in sort of doing the mechanics of answering the questions. So I think that's a, a you know, it's a, that's a, that's a big thing is, is some, um, uh, you know, and, and I see people who go through the education system and they've done, they've done really well. They've got, you know, all, you know, great grades and everything. But, uh, you know, it's very fragile. They're on some track. And when something new and different comes along, they actually have to figure something out. It's like, oh, my gosh, they didn't teach us how to do that. I mean, I've, you know, as a, as a longtime employer of, of very talented, very educated people, you know, I've had shocking experiences of, of, about that over the years. And... Uh, uh, and it, it's, uh, you know, and I think people find it uh, almost sometimes that they're, they feel like it's almost going back to middle school, which was the last time when they were kind of thinking flexibly, so to speak, before they got on this kind of, you're going to do this, and then this, and then this, you know, uh, sequence of, of, of steps. And, and, you know, it's, it's kind of a little bit, um, uh, and some people, some people manage to preserve that interest in just sort of thinking about things broadly and figuring stuff out for themselves, as opposed to just, you know, checking the next box and doing the next mechanical thing. I'd like to stay with this for a minute, if you don't mind, Stephen, because this is, I, I think, just a huge question right now with respect to education. You, you, you use the term track. I often have called the, particularly in America, the approach to education kind of a treadmill. You know, you go here and then you do your pre-SATs and then your SATs and you try and get into a, whatever a good college is and you get a credential there and then you try and get it this firm or that firm. And what strikes me about that, the word you used was, I think, fragile, that it can, can produce... Uh, an inability to connect with the, the the deeper fundamentals that allow you to be more generative. And let me put this slightly differently. You mentioned the humanities earlier, and that you thought oh, I'm never going to use this, and yet now you here you have your Greek and Latin behind you, your your your, your dictionaries. What I'm trying to get at is that the often what people think of as the most useful actually can turn into this this kind of robotic uh, and non-creative, replicative mode of thinking that isn't independent at all, whereas actually 
what is most generative is what is most fundamental, but what is most fundamental is, is precisely defined by not being obviously instrumental. And it seems to me this is, this is where one makes the greatest case for the humanities, is that if your whole education is defined according to you know, some, I don't know, very strictly conceived instrumental outcome, you never, you never learn the deeper skills that allow you to go towards the fundamentals where are paradoxically where the most useful things come out of. And so the paradox is that the most useful things one gets are often not acquired by trying to be useful, but by learning to go deep. Does this make any sense? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look, I, I think one has to realize uh, learning deeply about anything is very useful. It doesn't really matter so much what it is, but the process of learning deeply about something is very useful. Um, I think that some of the things are probably on the less useful end because they end up being essentially vocational training. I mean, I see this particularly, I mean, a, a particular, I would say, complex story right now is computer science education. So, you know, at, at some of the elite colleges now, you know, 70% of incoming students say they want to study computer science, which is completely crazy. Um, why do they, what are they going to study? What are they going to get out of it? A lot of that is essentially vocational training for being a programmer. Now, it turns out if you look at like my company, which probably employs some of the sort of most talented kind of people in that, in that crowd, the, the, uh, you know, some of them have sort of the standard computer science training, but a lot do not. And there is a, a very inadequate correlation between, oh, I did computer science in school and I'm a really good programmer. Um, it, it's, um, I mean, I think one of the, uh, one of my kids actually is fond of pointing out that um, in ancient Babylon, so, so, you know, computation, writing programs and things is kind of the new literacy in some sense. It's the thing that allows one access to, I would say, one of the new intellectual paradigms that um, uh, probably the dominant new intellectual paradigm uh, of this century, at least. Um, and, you know, a good analogy perhaps is to think about, you know, what happened in ancient Babylon, where they're teaching people to read and write, at least the scribes and so on. And, um, you know, one of the challenges is, okay, you teach people to read and write, but what are they going to read and write about? And even in the scribal schools of ancient Babylon, they would do a little bit of teaching about reading and writing, and then they would actually talk about the subject matter about which one might be reading and writing. And unfortunately, in computer science education, there's a, there's a sort of, uh, because there's sort of a, there tends to be this lack of, well, what are we going to teach? You know, what are we going to write programs about? Um, and it, it's, you know, that's, that's an example of where this kind of um, the mechanical teaching of how to program is, is almost, you know, it, that's not the important thing. The important thing, for, for example, you try and make up some algorithm for figuring something out. What they teach in computer science school tends to be given a very well-defined specification. How do you do the mechanics of making a computer do that? It's not given a vague question how do you define that? How do you think about that computationally to the point where one could, in principle, write a program to have a computer do it? Um, and I think that this, um, uh, yeah, I mean, this, I, I mean, look, there's a complicated set of interlocking issues. I mean, uh, you know, one of them has to do with uh, sort of the production line of education and the large number of people going through it and the kind of, you know, the assessment process and all this kind of thing. And, you know, how can you assess people on, on, for example, if, if people are supposed to be inventing something original, how can you assess that? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm fond of saying for the sort of in the, in the more research area, 
any subject for which there is a prize is a subject that has already reached the point where it isn't that original or interesting anymore, so to speak. Um, and it's, it's kind of a, a um, you know, anything that you can assess, so to speak, in a, in a sort of mechanical way um, is, is, you know, you've already removed some of the sort of, you know, human creativity and originality spark, I think. I mean, there's it, some exceptions to that, but that's a, uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think this question about how do you teach thinking, so to speak, and how do you get people to apply it? So, so one of the things I'm sort of fond of being frustrated about, I suppose, is people's inability to take what they learned in one place and apply it in other places. And, um, you know, I, another way I like to put it is do people actually even engage the thinking apparatus when they are confronted with some new thing? And, you know, you see people where it's like, oh, I don't know, they will be very sophisticated, quantitative, mathematical people. And then there's something that comes up in their everyday life or in some business situation where, gosh, a little bit of mathematical analysis would just, would nail it. But no, they don't think of doing that because that's a different box in their, in their kind of cognitive uh, uh, setup. Um, and, and they sort of never, never apply. I mean, I, I've... Um, um, you know, this, this, this idea that you could take something you've learnt and apply it somewhere else, that requires sort of a jump of, of, I don't know, creativity or something that a lot of people don't have and don't get from their standard education. I mean, it's like you're in math class now. Oh, you're doing um, uh, some history or something. You know, no way can you do something mathematical to figure out something that will be relevant to your history class, so to speak. That's, you know, that's a different class. You, you, you know, that, that isn't something you should do, so to speak. And, and I think people have a, a, how do you teach that educationally? I'm not sure about that. I, 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 I merely, I mostly observe, well, actually, I mean, I, I, in my own sort of efforts of uh, kind of have a hobby doing a certain amount of education, um, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's always interesting to get kids and so on, you know, you give them some problem and it's like, you know, they know the sort of mechanical raw material to solve it. And after enough iterations, they finally get the idea. Yes, you can take this thing from over here and start applying it to this, this new question that's come up. But, um, you know, I think it's a challenge. Yes, well, there's no question that uh, perhaps, especially at some of the more notable institutions of higher learning and this country, we're producing, uh, not in every case, but in many cases, people of extraordinary fragility who very much lack significant independence of mind. And there's a, there's a real sense if you can't think laterally in the way that you're saying, you're not really thinking at all. I mean, thinking is precisely defined, when you say that the thinking apparatus is precisely defined by that ability to revert to fundamentals and to go further into deeper fundamentals to see how those come out in, in relation to the problem you're now think, thinking about, not simply to apply a kind of mechanistic, uh, you know, I have one program that I can run and that's it, but to be able to understand the deeper movements that allow you to grasp how those things are present in different forms. So this does seem to be connected with the with I think one of the great myths, particularly perpetuated, frankly, by by many people in business who rightly seek to foster a kind of creativity and entrepreneurialism. Ironically, they often think the way to foster that is simply to, I don't know, make more people who can fill this little box. But actually, the way you create 
is by making people who are grounded enough in the fundamentals that they can create things that don't yet exist in the way that you brilliantly said at the beginning, being able to imagine what isn't there is the real key to creation. Right. No, I think that's, that's right. And I think that the, um, you know, it's worth realizing that this thing about taking initiative and doing creative things, I don't know if it's for everybody. You know, I don't know. I, it, it feels like people at younger ages are sort of naturally tend to do that. But then later on, they don't. Now, is that because it was squashed out of them by the education system? Or is that just because that is the natural course of, of certain people's evolution, so to speak? I mean, I think that, um, you know, if I, uh, you know, it, it's one of these things also in like a business setting, you know, it, it's kind of like you have a certain number of leaders and you have a whole bunch of followers. You know, if everybody was a leader, I'm not sure how well the whole thing would work out. So it, it's not the case that uh, and not everybody, I think, wants to be, uh, you know, thinking of something new and different every day. That there, there are people who I think, I mean, you know, that they're, they're they're on this track. They went to the fancy schools. They went to the fancy, you know, I mean, the you know the fancy top employers, the consulting firms, the you know the big tech companies, the law firms, the whatever else. Um, and you know, they're very they're smart people in the sense of analytical skills. You know, you give them a uh, uh, you know, a brain teaser puzzle, they'll probably be able to figure it out. You ask them some sort of uh, radically different thing that requires sort of really rethinking things from the foundations, it's not what they do. Um, and they don't really want to do that. And that's, you know, it's worth recognizing that that's not, it's not for everybody. Um, however, it's also, I think, important that, um, you know, to have an education system and a setup where you force everybody to go through the, the track, that's sort of potentially disastrous for the future. Because, you know, unless you want the world to only be what it is now and never to have anything new in it, you know, then you, you, you kind of, there isn't, um, uh, you know, it, it isn't good enough to just get people on a production line um, that, uh, that supplies sort of existing domains and uh, with existing kinds of expertise. Yes, I don't think there's any question that our current, so to speak, system of education is by and large mostly geared to a kind of mind-numbing conformity. And of course, I agree with what you're saying that that kind of you know radical creation of new things is 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 not for for everyone. But yet, at the same time, a kind of reflective independence about one's own life is so important because even if you don't want to, you know, shake up the whole of science as you do and have. It, you still don't want to find yourself middle-aged and thinking, huh, you know, I didn't really put any thought into the person I married and the career I chose and uh, the belief system I have. And, you know, now I find myself uh, unhappy because I never stopped to think about it. And so a, a kind of independence, and I don't mean, you know, questioning the, the deepest assumptions of the scientific disciplines, though that is what we need to do for others, such as yourself, but a kind of independence that allows you to live a free life is surely at the heart of the human experience, and a culture no, I think that can't a, I do that is in real trouble. Right, no, I mean, I think, I think that's a terrific and important thing. Uh, you know, I think there are certainly people who go through their whole lives without ever having sort of had to have, had to think independently like that. And, you know, I think it's a very complicated thing from the outside to say, you know, is that bad? Is that good? But certainly it shouldn't be happening for 100 percent of people. And there, there are lots of people for whom, you know, the, the kind of independence of thought and so on 
is, is, will be tremendously fulfilling to them and will greatly enhance their lives you know, if they get to that point. And you know, I, I've certainly seen, look, I mean, the, the pattern that I see all too often is the bright kid who um, uh, often from a fairly uh, sort of successful background, you know, they go to, the, they go to these you know, good schools and they work incredibly hard and they're very, very busy and they never get a chance. I mean, this is one of my current pet peeves is that, you know, I think of myself, I spend a bunch of time doing science, writing things, running companies, things like that. You might think I would be fairly busy, but actually it seems like a bunch of the sort of high school students I know at least appear to be vastly busier than I am. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's, you know, and I, I think this is, um, and, and you know, for me, I spend a large fraction of my time actually thinking about stuff and trying to figure stuff out. And I, you know, I think about new things that I haven't thought about before. And I seem to manage to find the time to do that. But, but of course, I'm not doing every possible extracurricular activity and so on. And I think that one of the things that, that happens is, you know, people, you said, they get on this, these kinds of tracks, treadmills, where it's like, I'm doing this because I'm going to do this next, because I'm going to do this next, and so on. And, you know, they keep themselves very busy, so they don't really have a chance to even uh, think about. And in fact, they sometimes are quite disoriented when they have a chance to sort of just just think, so to speak, about something that uh, isn't part of the, you know, the exercise they're supposed to be doing, whatever else. And then, you know, they'll go and they'll successfully go to the sort of fanciest, most elite, most branded uh, you know, educational institutions and so on, they will often find a lot of people who went through a similar track themselves together with a few who, who slipped through the cracks and actually didn't go through such a track and, and, um, and ended up in those places uh, anyway. But then the very common thing, so, so one of the things I've noticed, you know, I, I talk to kids, I ask them, what do you want to do when you're grown up? So some fraction just passionately say they want to do this or that or the other thing, Okay. And it's always amusing to me that, that uh, you know, I'll, I'll kind of notice that 20 years later, I'll see what they do. Most of those people did what they said they were going to do. I mean, they, you know, by the time they were age 12, 13, 14, and they were passionate about something, maybe it diverted a bit. But, um, you know, by the time they had real sort of passion for that thing, decent chance they, uh, you know, they, they, they got to do it. Now, there's a, a lot who are like going to the finest schools and so on, say, I have no idea what I want to do. Okay, so then what happens? So they go through, you know, fancy colleges and so on. And then a couple of things happen. They'll either, you know, I think in, in the very end, they'll go to some career fair and there'll be some company that's recruiting, consulting firm, whatever else, and they'll sign up. And it's like, did they really, you know, is this really what they want to do? Not particularly, but, you know, they were supposed to, through the magic of college, they were supposed to discover what they wanted to do. And, well, it didn't quite work, but anyway, they have to do something. So they go off and join the consulting firm or whatever else. Um, or, or they say, I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a gap year. I'm going to teach in wherever, whatever it is. But, um, you know, I think then, and then the bad thing that can happen is, you know, they wake up at age 45 and they realize, oh, my gosh, you know, what have I been doing for the last however many years? I'm in some fairly, you know, I'm, I'm on this, this treadmill, you know, producing consulting reports, you know, doing litigation, whatever, whatever else it is, uh, you know, seeing patients as a doctor or whatever. 
And, uh, you know, I'm not sure I ever really wanted to sign up for this, but it's kind of too late by then. Um, and so, yes, I, I agree that this is a, um, uh, you know, but it's very hard for me, actually, to tease out the, um, I've been in the, in the world of, you know, running a company that tries to do creative things. I'm always looking for people who do creative things. And sometimes, you know, you can take somebody who is, who is good on one of these tracks and you say, now, even sort of you, you, you slowly move them to something that isn't quite as much on the track. And they really don't want to be there. They want to be back on a track where, where there's a well-defined thing. They're going to, you know, they can already say, in 20 years, I'll be doing this. You know, I'll make partner at my firm in such and such an amount of time and so on. And they, you know, and it's very disorienting to do something different. Now, you know, the, the thing to say is there's clearly a fraction of the population and it's in the certainly double digits of percent where they should be trying to do things that are not as tracked as that. And I think the pity of it is that sometimes in the, in the sort of the, the pecking order of, of, of things with education and so on, it's like, well, if you are successful at running down that race course, then that's, that's sort of what defines success. Um, and if you're kind of the, the funky kid who's really creative and can come up with a lot of great things to do, but, well, you don't sit still for long enough to do really well in these tests, then, sorry, you know, you're out of luck, so to speak. And that's, you know, that's a bad setup. I think this is, this is just a huge question, you know, the, the way in which the system itself is disincentivizing creativity, that it's, it's actually unthinkingness that it is designed in a certain sense to produce. And there's a huge question, I think, about whether we as a culture can afford to have not all, but many of our, so to speak, best and brightest, a term that I think is absurd when you look at what these people actually produce at many colleges, um, but who are, who are being incentivized simply to become kind of cogs uh, and who cogs in a machine who furthermore are astoundingly fragile, uh, whether uh, intellectually or politically or otherwise, unable to confront the actual complexity of, of reality. Um, you said something that I want to go back to, which I think is, is, is absolutely disruptive which, with the way most people think. And that is that you said something, and you may be being facetious, but you said that you, I think, find yourself to be less busy with all of the things Stephen Wolfram is doing than many high school students are. And, and, and this seems to me to go back to this paradox of depth and productivity that people think that if you want to do a lot, you should just go off and you know, be, get busy and go doing you know, this and then that and then the next thing. Whereas in fact, the most generative place is thinking itself. And you know, if that is so, which I think in a, in a way all of life teaches us and the history of philosophy teaches us, I'd love to ask you about your, insofar as you're willing to share them, Stephen, your own habits, because I think many young people are, are simply not aware that scrolling through social media, you know, 17 hours a day is actually not how human beings have always throughout history spent their time. And indeed, even in our own time, doing so is not conducive to creativity or productivity or indeed happiness. And so if you're willing to share with us a little bit, give us a sense of how disruptive your own habits are with what one might expect a busy entrepreneur with your success and creativity uh, might be thought to have. Well, I'm, I'm kind of a weird outlier in this. I, I've kind of been a, a, uh, an enthusiast of sort of personal productivity and personal analytics and so on for a long time. So, you know, 
uh, like shocking, I am probably the human who's collected more data on themselves than anybody else over the last 30 years or so. Of, you know, every keystroke I've typed and every, you know, all of these kinds of things. But so my, my personal approach is, uh, you know, part of it is I've become pretty efficient at what I do. And the parts of my life that are not about producing things and are not about sort of creating things, I've, I've kind of minimized. You know, I don't, uh, uh, you know, I've, I, I, you know I, I don't put a lot of thought into what I'm going to eat for breakfast each day. You know, it's pretty much always the same. Um, you know, I don't, uh, uh, I don't put a lot of, you know, I, I'm, I'm very habitual in the things that are sort of, uh, that I view as being not, not things that I have to figure out from scratch. That is, you know, there'll be, there'll be things where I'm just, it's a routine for me. I'm doing this or that. Now, you know, I, I have a, a complicated life with, a, you know, I have a, you know, like a, a person who spends their full time basically scheduling stuff for me. So that's a, that's kind of an unfair comparison for the, for the high school student crowd. Although, although I suppose somebody is scheduling for them, but it isn't, it isn't custom for them, so to speak. And, uh, you know, and I've, and I've learned myself well enough to know when I am doing such and such a project, um, here's how long it will take me to get up to speed and, and here's what block of time I'm going to need to make progress on this. But I think that the, um, Oh, the main thing is just, um, you know, okay, it probably helps that I become pretty efficient at the things that I do, but it also, it's, um, uh, and I like doing new things. So that also helps in terms of, of um, you know, getting things to the point that perhaps there's a, another thing, which is that I tend to do projects where I know the stages of the project and I get the project to the point where it's kind of done and then I can move on to the next thing. and. Um, it's, uh, uh, you know, and I've also built for myself what I usually, and again, this is not necessarily applicable to everybody, but I built these kind of matrices for what to do with the things I do. So for instance, you know, I have a blog and when I'm thinking about certain kinds of things and, and want to think it through and so on, I'll think it through and I'll write a big blog post about it. And that's a thing that I do. If I didn't have that blog, I might study some piece of history and I don't know what I'd do with it. You know, I would have to imagine that I'm going to write a whole book about it, which would take much longer and be much, be much less efficient. So having that kind of, you know, one sort of matrix is that blog. I mean, also uh, we build, uh, you know, I've spent the last 30 something years building this thing we call Wolfram language this computational language and an awful lot of ideas I have wind up as features of that language. I mean, thousands and thousands of ideas, end up as features of that language, which then get, you know, distributed as part of, uh, as part of that language and used by, by millions of people and so on. And so that's, again, sort of a matrix for, for things I do. And there are other areas where I've never built a matrix for, for those things, like, like, for instance, I don't know, inventing random stuff, you know, coming up with, um, like, I, I, years ago, I, I was, like, um, uh, started, uh, you know, I like to get some exercise even when it's terrible weather. And so I'll walk on a treadmill and I have a computer set up and I can, you know, type on the computer and so on. I figured out how to do all that. And I was thinking, oh, maybe I should file some patents about this stuff. And I thought, no, that's totally stupid. I have absolutely no, nothing to do with this. I mean, it, you know, it's like I can throw this out there, but nothing's going to happen with it. So, but I think the, the applicable, uh, look, the, the main thing about uh, sort of having time to do stuff is just deciding you're going to have time to do stuff because mm. it's, you know, I could spend, if you look at the things, you know, I, I like to think of it as 
I do these projects, they're often very big projects, and they have a tail that could last the rest of my life. I mean, you know, and, and you know, again, I'm in a slightly different situation because I've got a company with 800 people in it that, you know, take the ideas that I've had and, and try and do great things with them. You know, so there's, a, there's sort of a, a pipeline for, given that the thing is at a certain stage, how does it get moved forward without me having to, without it taking over the rest of my life, so to speak. But uh, I think that for me, I, I, I try to, you know, so, somehow when I want to do something new, I always manage to find the time to do it, even though I've got all these other things going on. And like this physics project that I was just started working on last fall, it's like, look, I've got a company to run. It's in a very active phase. We've got a bunch of products being developed. But you know what? I'm just going to spend some time and work on the physics project. And turns out, given the will to do that, somehow it manages to be possible. And, and perhaps it would be different if I was in a situation where somebody had scheduled me every hour of the day with, you know, classes I was supposed to take or something like this. And, and you know, once, once you're in that kind of box, perhaps it's hard to, to work your way out of that. But, and which is why I always find it such a pity when, when I run into, you know, high school kids, because it's like, you don't have to be busy at this time in your life. Maybe there's another time in your life when you have to be busy because, you know, you're, running some organization and you know it's in a very intense phase and there's things to do that will take you know take 100% of your time but it's not true um it really isn't true because i mean the only reason why you know you might be busy as a high school student is because you believe that by checking all these boxes you optimize the next step it's like sometimes people are like i really have to do this so that i can be at this place so i can be at that place and it's like you know <laughs> I'm always amused at the kind of be careful what you wish for sort of thought because it's kind of like it isn't actually, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, the, that sort of uh, you're kind of signing up for just more of the same, so to speak. It doesn't it doesn't it, it's you know, you're, you're you're busy now and you say I'm going to be busy now. It's like people who say I'm doing all these things now because because I'm 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 you know, I'm getting ready for my retirement. And then they say, what are you going to do when you retire? And they're like, well, they come up with a few things. But, but in fact, that's what they should have been doing. You know, they'll say, I'm going to do this when I retire. And it's like, why didn't you do that all your life? If that's what you actually want to do, why isn't that what you did? You know, why didn't you find a way to do that? Well, usually the answer is because they got sort of locked into some profession that um, uh, you know, paid the bills. And by the time they kind of noticed that it wasn't the thing they wanted to spend their whole life doing, they were kind of at a state where they couldn't, you know, they couldn't do something different because they wouldn't be able to pay the bills, so to speak. I wish we could make a, and maybe we will, make a one-minute clip of Stephen Wolfren saying what you just said and, and show it to every high school student in the country uh, because the basic assumptions that with which they have been encouraged to approach their life are not going to deliver the things they think they are going to deliver. And the cult of busyness both stifles creativity and mitigates against finding deeper meaning. And as you've said, you've said, it's only by actually taking the time to think that you can either discover the things that make your life worth living or, and or I might say, create things that are powerful, generative, lasting, new, uh, et cetera. Um, now, Stephen, I, I want to just say one thing about thinking and about the process please. and so on. I mean, you know, 
I am, for example, profoundly bad at just sitting and thinking about something. That's not what I do. I'm always actually in the process of doing something. So, you know, for me, you know, computation, computers and so on, that's, you know, when I'm thinking, I'm typing computational language typically. I'm doing computer experiments, things like that. I'm, I'm not, for me, I mean, you know, maybe other people are different, but for me, I find it very hard to just sort of sit abstractly and think without any kind of, uh, uh, without any interaction with anything. But for me, it's kind of like I'm doing a computational experiment or I'm writing something, or maybe I'm talking to somebody. Um, I mean, this is the, um, you know, I, I, I want to sort of uh, um, not give the impression that, you know, I'm sort of reserving, you know, the, the 15 minutes to just sit and think. I myself am profoundly bad at that. What I do is, is uh, you know, I think what works for me is, you know, thinking with, uh, you know, thinking in a medium, so to speak, whether it's, whether it's writing, whether it's, you know, uh, sort of uh, doing computational language kinds of things. I mean, computers for me are really, really valuable because I formulate something computationally in my mind, I tell it to the computer, the computer does something. I look at what it did. It's like, oh, that's interesting, you know, let me try to understand that. And it's a, it's a terrific kind of feedback loop. I mean, it's a feedback loop that I can also get by talking to other people, but it's pretty efficient dealing with a, with a computer too. Um, and, and for me, like writing and, uh, you know, is also important because that's the way that I actually get to understand what I'm talking about, so to speak is, you know, trying to actually explain it and sort of being honest in my explanation of not, uh, you know, actually trying to explain it in a way that, that, um, that, that is really getting to the point, so to speak. And that, that's, um, uh, so for me that, you know, it, it um, you know, the concreteness of, um, uh, of, of sort of thinking in a medium is important. The other thing that's important for me, at least, is I kind of have to know why I'm thinking about something. I mean, I, I think I, I mentioned earlier the importance that I, I at least place on sort of the strategy of what one's trying to, what one's trying to do, uh, you know, what, what, what is the question one's asking, so to speak. But for me, you know, if, if I'm trying to, for example, learn some field, and I just say abstractly, oh, I should learn about this field, I'm, I'm really pretty bad at doing that. But if you give me some, I don't know, there's one mathematical field, for example, where I've been meaning to learn about it for like 30 years, category theory, okay? Well, never got around to it. I tried a few times, and it's like, it's just too abstract. I can't understand anything. Okay, but then, now, with my physics project, it's like, I think category theory is going to be useful for this thing. And once I have an objective, then, you know, then I can be pretty effective at learning that field. And, and you know, it's a, sort of an interesting process, this learning to learn a new field, learning about how to learn a new field, because I've, I've had the, the good fortune to do that many, many times now. It's always an interesting process because it's a it's definitely a humility inducing business because you know you're learning a new field and you actually are starting from pretty much nothing and if you start talking to people who do that field it's like they'll tell you all these things and you, you don't understand any of them and you know my my usual strategy actually if 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 it's a well-developed field i tend to go look at the introductions to the well-known textbooks that's a good um good strategy particularly well-known textbooks written by sort of well-known people in those fields because once you get into the meat of the textbook, it's all mechanics and details and so on. But the introductory parts are often kind of somebody had to write down what was the main point of this field, what was the what was the big picture, and what, what I found is then you know then you start trying to. For me, I always have to have an actual question that I'm asking that's related to that field, um, and then I can you know I, I'm I'm always uh, 
you know, I don't know, like pick a random field, I don't know, genomics or something, okay? Before I, you know, a decade ago, got my own genome sequenced, I didn't really ever understand that very well. But once I had my own genome and I was curious to look at a bunch of things on the computer and so on, then I actually could start, you know, really engaging in that field and, and, and learning about it. And I think that, um, and there's usually a time when I'm trying to learn about some new field when I'm, I don't know, some fraction of the way through where I'll talk to people about it and every person I talk to will tell me about some new thing that I've never heard about before. And then usually for me, it's a fairly, a, a fairly sharp transition. There comes this moment when I finally get my arms around this field and when pretty much every new person I talk to will tell me stuff where I say, oh yeah, okay, I know about that, that fits in here or there. Um, and it's, it's kind of this, you know, the field is of a certain size and you kind of have to explore all the pieces and then eventually you manage to, to sort of wrap your arms around it. And I think often in, um, I mean, it's sometimes the way that fields are presented educationally makes it profoundly difficult to get to that point. But that's, that's, a, um, uh, that's kind of a, a different issue. Just picking up on that, on that point, Stephen, what are your thoughts on the relation between intellectual humility and let's call it intellectual courage? You know, on the one hand, to learn a new field, one has to be very humble. One's learning something that one doesn't know anything or very little about. On the other hand, to learn to think at all requires a certain courage to think things that, to be, to follow the argument where perhaps other people have not yet followed it or even think is wrong to follow. How do you find a balance and cultivate a balance in, in your, 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 your summer students, in your staff, in yourself, between the humility we need to learn and the courage that our thinking demands? Yeah, I think, I think the um, first point is I always believe in doing one's homework, so to speak. That is, you know, one's, one's learning about some field and one could just try and figure out everything for oneself. But once one is on a track trying to learn about something, trying to figure something out, it's like, go figure out, go see what other people have done. There's, you know, it's kind of crazy not to do that. Um, I think that that, um, uh, and, you know, in terms of this question of, of well, there's sort of a question of how much do you figure out for yourself versus how much do you take sort of accepted wisdom and go with that, so to speak. And I think that the, um, uh, uh, you know, my wife is always fond of pointing out that I am very definitely on the side of figure out everything for yourself, right? So there are things where she's told me this or that thing, you know, 20 years ago, she told me this or that thing. And I'm like, oh, just because everybody else says that, I don't believe it. And then finally, 20 years later, I come to that conclusion for myself. And then it's like, oh, I'm really going to do that or whatever. So, you know, it, it's, a, um, it's a thing where uh, but I, I think one of the things probably that's most important in terms of, of um, figuring stuff out for oneself and so on is, is developing a certain degree of confidence that that's actually going to work out, that you can figure out stuff for yourself and that it's, um, and that, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be a bad thing to do that. And for myself, I was fortunate in that I managed to have good success early in my life doing what was at that time perceived as sort of a top field, theoretical physics. And, you know, I was sort of a, a um, I don't know, a top dog or something in that particular small, I'm mixing metaphors, pond. And um, that experience definitely helped in giving me confidence to go and do other things. And so I think that, that um, this idea of, is it possible? Could I possibly do that? It... Uh, 
in my role as a leader of a tech company and so on, I think a large part of my role is just saying, yes, guys, it really is possible. This can really be done. And then also when they say, no, it's really, really impossible going and trying and actually to solve the problem that, that, um, that caused them to say it was really impossible. But I think it really helps to build up a, a, um, a sort of foundation of confidence that one could figure out things for oneself. One did manage to do that piece of research one that, where one got a, you know, figured out something that nobody's figured out before. And I think from an education point of view, and I've tried to do this with our summer school, for example, and summer camp, is get people into something. You, you have a sort of a right-sized problem where they can tackle it in a certain amount of time and they can see, I tackled something and nobody's ever done this before. And I managed to do it in some number of weeks and got some, some reasonable result. And that's an important thing to realize that that's, that's for oneself, that one can do that, that one can do something that nobody else has ever done before. And you know, not the, the standard education system, you just don't typically have that experience. Um, I mean, at best, you're writing essays where, you know, I think in, increasingly people are sort of, the essay has to follow exactly in this box and, and have this, this, this sort of paradox and things, which is quite deadly. Um, you know, but that's at least an opportunity to be able to say something that people haven't uh, uh, in detail said before. But I think, you know, another thing I've noticed about people doing things is, you know, when I, you know, I've done a bunch of big projects in my life, other people have been involved in those projects. Uh, and what I've noticed is people who see a project that goes from nothing to something and are really somehow, you know, watching it in detail, the meta learning that comes from seeing that process is incredibly valuable. I mean, that is, you know, they go from seeing, oh, it's just an idea. And sometimes they'll say, oh, that couldn't possibly work, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then pretty soon, you know, a few years later, year later, whatever, it's like, oh my gosh, you know, this is a real thing in the world that really worked. And I think, you know, I've noticed for people at our company, for example, there's, I think there's a sort of a 10 year glow, at least, that comes from people who are involved in a project that went from nothing to something, and they just have a certain confidence that that's possible. Um, and I think that the, you know, for for kids, for example, you know, I, I have sort of a hobby of mentoring some kids. My my own kids don't need that, so so that's. Um, but um, and, and you know, I think that that um, showing them this process, insofar as one can, of going from nothing to something, is really valuable. And and I think that in terms of um, you know, I don't know what the best ways to kind of capture that in the educational process are, but I think that, um, you know, I think a lot of, um, you know, there are these fields, uh, you know, my, my son Alexander is keen on sort of philosophy education, and I think he has an interesting point there. The point that he tends to make is, if you're teaching about math, for example, the chances are, or, or physics, for instance, the chances are for the typical kid that they can have no particularly original thought about those things at the level where they are, you know, operating in, in high school or something. But if you're talking about something like philosophy or ethics or some such other thing, sort of almost anybody can have a, at least locally original thought, so to speak, and can have an opinion about it and can talk about it. And I think that's a, a valuable concept there. I tend to think in the, in the things that I'm involved in with computation, and, uh, you know, I've spent a long time building this computational language out or from language system, which whose goal is to provide a framework for giving people a way to think computationally about things and to remove the sort of mechanical impediment 
to, oh, I don't know how to program that, so to speak. Once you can formulate your thoughts computationally, and we're trying to provide a language in which you can formulate those thoughts in sort of the same kind of way that something like mathematical notation provides a way to, to allow people to formulate their thoughts mathematically, we provide them a way to formulate their thoughts computationally, and the actual ability for the computer to take those thoughts and do something with them. Well, that's, a, that's sort of a, a new kind of medium in which one can kind of have, in which almost anybody can sort of have original thoughts, so to speak. In other words, um, in doing um, uh, something, um, if you're sort of using computational methods on a field, X, any field, you know, pick your favorite field, philosophy, archaeology, zoology, whatever. If you use modern computational methods, you will, this, at least at this time in history, almost certainly be doing things that have never been done before. It's a, you know, it's a way, it's a, a medium of, a, a paradigm for thinking, a medium of, of doing things that's just, it's, it's vast and it's, it, it's unexplored and it, it won't be fully explored for a very, very long time. Um, I mean, it's, it's a... Um, but it's another place where you can go, you know, and, and I notice people who come to our summer camp, summer school and so on, they get fluent enough in our computational language that they can actually go to sort of any problem and uh, pick at it with some new tool. I mean, I, you know, my, my son Christopher, for example, is, is big on doing this. You know, he, he kind of learned our computational language when he was pretty young and is, is very fluent in it. And he can... You know, he works on all kinds of stuff. He's been working on Babylonian astronomy recently, but um, actually, well, and um, he's working on uh, just, you know, given any kind of question about data, he was working on income distributions in the US. He was working on road networks in different countries, things like that. It's sort of remarkable because he's fluent in this sort of computational language tools. He can go to any uh, sort of any area and start doing things. Actually, he, he's done something that's kind of charming. He's gone through a, now he's at um, traditional university after some other adventures, but he's, he's now at Brown. And it seems like every class he does, he picks the classes not based on, he picks classes with a sole uh, strategy of pick a class that's about a subject he thinks is interesting. That's it. That's not, um, and so that's, that's ranged across a wide variety of things. But I've noticed this, this very charming phenomenon, that, you know, I'll do a class about oceanography or something, and pretty soon he'll be using computational methods to do some research project in that field because it's really easy for him. And it's because he knows these tools and given the subject matter, you know, you kind of, you kind of bash that subject matter with a, with a different way of thinking. And it's really easy to ask questions that people probably haven't asked before and certainly haven't had the wherewithal to answer before. So I think that's a, I would say that to me today, there are sort of two obvious vectors into kind of, kind of tools for thought. You know, one is the, the tried and true kind of uh, uh, philosophy, liberal arts kind of vector. The other is probably the computational vector, which actually is closer than you think to the liberal arts vector. It just has, you know, except it isn't the Babylonians teaching writing. It's, you know, us teaching computational language, so to speak. But it's, you know, this is just an organizing method for thinking. It is not, uh, uh, the important part is not the mechanics of interacting with the computer or whatever. The important part is the figuring out what you're going to interact about. And it just so happens that it's, a, you know, using a computer well as a giant power tool, so to speak, 
that um, uh, you don't um, uh, th that's newly available in the last you know few decades, and that uh, you know I think had it been available back in um, you know in antiquity or something, we would have very different. Uh, uh, certainly, the, my my current uh, work in fundamental physics, Democritus would probably have got there um, if he had had the tools that I have. I mean, he was he was thinking along the right lines. He just was way off in terms of the uh, you know the tool set that was available. I just want to say how moved I am by what you've just described about uh, your mentoring and the whole vision of what young people are able to uh, to to achieve. I think the the tragedy is that if young people are not encouraged to see themselves in great possibilities of discovery, if they're not encouraged to imagine that they might be capable of doing that, the tragedy is that they, they very likely will not. It's like having wings, but not knowing you're made to fly. And if there can be few things more fundamental in education than inspiring that sense of possibility while also giving one the tools to do that. You know, if one looks through history, think of, for example, Pergolese's Stabat Mater, I mean, composed just before he was 26 years old. I mean, William Pitt was Prime Minister of England at, at the age, uh, age of 21. I mean, the things that young people can achieve are as great and boundless as at any other age. And it's, I don't think there's any question that that's not how young people are encouraged to see themselves or how our educational system encourages them to see themselves. This has just been uh, a wonderful conversation. Uh, it's been very inspiring to me to hear your reflections on just what education can and should be. It's a matter we've given a lot of thought to at Ralston College, and that is really our whole fundamental purpose to foster real, deep, creative, fundamental thinking. Thank you so great much, thing. Steve, for your do time it. today. Sorry, go ahead, please. No, no, I, I was just saying it's a great thing to do. Go for it. <laughs> make it happen. Make it big. <laughs> We're going to make it happen. Thanks so much for your time today, Stephen. Your, uh, your, your creativity and your tireless seeking of ever deeper understandings are an inspiration to me. Thank you. Thanks. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's guest was the physicist, computer scientist, and entrepreneur, Stephen Wolfram. His books include Idea Makers, Personal Perspectives on the Lives and Ideas of Some Notable People, A New Kind of Science, and most recently, A Project to Find the Fundamental Theory of Physics. I also encourage you to check out his website and blog at stephenwolfram.com. Today's conversation focused on education, Wolfram also has very interesting things to say about computational irreducibility, physics, and philosophy, but we decided to leave those for another time. In the meanwhile, we always love hearing from you, our listeners, so please feel free to subscribe, leave us a comment, or to send us a note. You can also join our endeavor to renew, reform, and reimagine higher education at www.ralston.ac. Upcoming episodes include conversations with the Scottish sculptor Sandy Stoddart, the satirist Andrew Doyle, and the scholar of Russian literature Donna Orwin. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.